0: You're listening to the Economics Review podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe
1: wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is a professor of economics at the UNSW Business School, director of the Economics of Education Knowledge Hub at UNSW Business, co-director of the New Economic Policy Initiative, and president of the Academy of Social Sciences in Australia. Holding a PhD in economics from Harvard University, his research focuses on contract theory, organizational economics, uh, law and economics, and political economy. His latest book is titled From Free to Fair Markets, Liberalism After COVID, It's my great pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Richard Holden. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you. Firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and your research.
0: Sure, so I am a professor of economics at uh, UNSW in, in Australia. I am Australian originally. I spent about a decade in the US. I got my PhD at Harvard, and then I was on the faculty at MIT in the University of Chicago and came back to Australia about 11 years ago now. So I work across a range of different areas of economics. My sort of core academic interest is in contract theory, uh, the area that Oliver Hart and Ben Holmstrom won the 2016 Nobel Prize for. But that covers a fair bit of territory, and I colour outside the lines from time to time.
1: Okay, so I wanted to start off by talking about your book from Free to Fair Markets, Liberalism uh, After COVID, beginning with the first part titled Crisis in Neoliberalism. Um, So in the description, you write, quote, the world has witnessed a dramatic rise of corporate power, concentration of wealth, and the failure of liberal societies to address some of the most pressing challenges of our time. To survive, liberalism will need a radical reboot to find new ways of tackling the current challenges posed by corporate power, inequality, and climate change. So I wanted to discuss this premise, starting with the idea that liberal societies have failed to address the concentration of wealth. Um, The first thing I would argue here, um, like most staunch defenders of neoliberalism, is that inequality is fundamentally meaningless as a metric and that the only thing that matters is poverty. So I might have tremendous wealth inequality with Bill Gates but I'm doing pretty well. And so is he. And the fact that he has more than me, it's in a failing of the system. Um, So liberal societies have been incredibly successful at improving living standards for the poor through free market innovation. And as long as we can move in a direction where nobody has to live in poverty and everyone has the opportunity to move up, um, why should we care about the fact that some people, some rich people have so much more?
0: Look, I'm really sympathetic to that view with with a a small caveat, but, um, I think one thing we should recognise is that, you know, take the average American worker, right? In real terms, the average American worker uh, hasn't had a pay rise in between 40 and 50 years. So I, I would say that goes beyond... Um, you know, a few people becoming very wealthy, which I don't find troubling at all, uh, much like you. But basically, one of the great promises of liberalism, of classical liberalism, is, um, you know, that a rising tide would lift all boats. And it hasn't done that. And it hasn't just left a few people behind. It's left, you know, the median worker behind. And so I think that's a problem. But, you know, coming to your point, you know, one of the core one of the core planks of what we define as democratic liberalism in the book is talk about guaranteeing access to a public baseline of core goods or what we sometimes call a generous social minimum and that really is about your point about poverty it's about saying everyone deserves a certain level of dignity regardless of what the market delivers them regardless of what their their labor market outcomes are and we should ensure that And beyond that, we really shouldn't be worried, you know, like if Bill Gates is drinking a $1,000 bottle of wine, that doesn't make your $20 bottle of wine any worse, except in in three areas that we talk about, which we call relative goods. Um, And, you know, there could be some back and forth on what exactly is here, but we think that um, to a degree, education, uh, living close to amenities, so housing close to amenities, Um, like work and schools and parks uh, and clean water and things like that, and to a degree the healthcare system, are areas where somebody being dramatically better off than you and their access to those things actually does impose an externality on you and does make you worse off. So there we're going to worry more about inequality, but in the other areas, you're right, we're worrying about poverty. We're worried about guaranteeing everyone a generous social minimum.
1: Okay. Um, so, um, I mean, even if even if we do um, accept sort of um, this divide and say, well, um, uh, people haven't had sort of a, a raise in, in their income or, you know, their, their incomes haven't increased for the average American for five decades or, um, or something like that, um, wouldn't the sort of the extreme wealth divide, um, uh, I mean, I, I'm struggling with the mechanism as to how that would, you know, ha- how one would hinder or, or have any impact on the other. So, I mean, even if we do have a, a billionaire hedge fund manager, or Bill Gates, or whoever it is, um, you know, they can either spend their money, um, you know, and even then they can only spend, spend a sp- small portion of it, or they have to invest it. Um, and so when they do invest their money, um, doesn't that just, you know, help create innovation, create jobs, which helps um, raise incomes and, and raise living standards and all, all that sort of thing?
0: No, that's absolutely right. So I don't have a problem with income inequality per se. Uh, I think there is work to be done in guaranteeing people a dignified, generous social minimum. And I think in plenty of advanced economies, that's not really the case for all citizens. So this is really asking questions like, you know, is the minimum wage actually high enough in the United States? And I would say that the federal minimum wage is not high enough. Now, we go a great length in the book and we're at great pains to say, look, there is a trade-off. Between minimum wages and employment outcomes. And I think the evidence is, is pretty clear on that, not notwithstanding the famous Card-Kruger paper. Um, and so, you know, we're not talking about some sort of um, you know, expansive vision of a $30 an hour minimum wage, but you know, something like the fight for 15 seems pretty reasonable. And, you know, at the risk of sounding parochial in a country like Australia, you have a minimum wage. Which looks like something when you do the currency translation about $15 an hour and things like that. So I think there's still work to be done in the United States. But again, you know, we spend some time um, in one of the latter chapters in the book arguing against inheritance taxes or estate taxes, arguing strongly against wealth taxes. So what we're trying to do here really is acknowledge some of the problems with neoliberalism, acknowledge some of the anger that is out there, but find a path through that that doesn't look anything like Sanders, AOC, Warren, Democratic, Socialism, but also doesn't look like Steve Bannon, Economic Nationalism, which is one of the other responses, you know, this time on the right, to things like the loss of manufacturing jobs that have come from the rise of China and, and the increase in free trade and globalisation. So it's about threading that needle, but I think consistent with what, what I think a lot of the point that you're making is, is we want to try and address what we see as some of these failings of neoliberalism but without giving up on either economic efficiency or, or, or free choice.
1: OK, um, yeah, that that minimum wage point um, is, is interesting as well, um, because, again, from sort of a, a neoliberal point of view, um, there there are some some sort of obvious issues that that I think a lot of people would would um, take issue with there. Um, so, for example, I think one of one of the clearest things that jumps out to me is um, a $15 minimum wage doesn't really, you know, set the minimum wage at $15. It just means that anyone whose labor isn't worth $15 gets zero dollars instead. Right.
0: Uh, you look, I think that's right. I'm not sure how many people there are who's who who are able to work whose labor isn't worth $15. But as I say, uh, you know, I totally acknowledge what that what that trade-off is. Um, you know, but what we're talking about here is a a basically a social safety net that says not at a great lifestyle, not at something that most people would aspire to, but at a minimum level that gives people dignity. You know, we owe people we owe people that generous social minimum. And that should involve universal health care. It it doesn't have to involve elective surgery. It doesn't have to involve dental care. It doesn't have to involve a private room or choice of doctor. But it does have to involve a a level of dignity and a generous social minimum. And I think a pretty effective delivery vehicle for, for part of that is a minimum wage, which is, you know, still not exactly very high. Um, but it is able to to deliver that. And you look at like again, look at Australia where that is the case. You know, we've got three point nine percent unemployment. Um, you know, we don't we don't have a dysfunctional economy as a result of that. And so, I think there's reason to believe something like that can can be done in an effective way.
1: Okay. Um, so the next thing I wanted to ask you about is. The premise that liberalism needs a radical reboot um, due in part to its failure to address um, challenges posed by climate change. So uh, I would argue that liberal countries have been incredibly successful um, in tackling climate change from solar and nuclear power to the electric um, vehicle revolution to virtually every other development and innovation, which allows us to make the switch to renewable energy came from the United States or one of its liberal uh, contemporaries with free markets that allow for innovation and access to capital, capital um, often from wealthy investors. Um, so what then, in, in the face of all these rapid advancements in green energy and technologies in the liberal world, leads you to believe that we've been unsuccessful in tackling the challenges posed by climate change? Well, firstly, I agree
0: with you that most of the green technology innovation has happened in places like the United States, and and, you know, I I applaud that, and and I'm encouraging of that, Uh, and I certainly don't want some Green New Deal or some big government plan to try and you know get in the way of that in in any way whatsoever. I think the reason that Um, you know, there's reason to be concerned about how well we have done, notwithstanding the accomplishments that you point to there, is the amount of carbon we still emit. And when, you know, you look at what the best science is on this and look, look at what, you know, the path of global temperature growth is and the consequences of that, it's fairly alarming. And I think one of the main failures has been the failure to put a price on carbon. And so if there had been you know, a carbon tax or a carbon tax plus dividend, which is our preferred model, a carbon dividend along the lines of what the Climate Leadership Council, you know, which included some pretty conservative people as well uh, as as some liberals. And so, you know, uh, you, you may remember this was championed in op-eds by, you know, George Baker, um, you know, George Schultz and uh, sorry, Jim Baker, George Schultz and Larry Summers. And so, um, you know, that that's sort of reaching across the aisle to a certain degree. I I think the failure to put a price on carbon has really meant that the adoption of those technologies, as well as arguably, um, you know, even even uh, more impressive development of those technologies really hasn't been as fast as it it could have been. So I think there's work to be done there. But I agree, it's not going to Happen effectively through some some kind of central planning. And we're, you know, um, certainly not advocating that.
1: Okay. Um, so moving on to the the second part of the book, um, which is titled From Free to Fair Markets um, and introduces several reforms to our current system, starting with a green jobs guarantee. So tell us a bit about this proposal, how it would work and, and why you believe it's necessary. Sure. So this is motivated by um, the, the
0: sort of automation revolution and, and, uh, you know, you know, right now we're in a position, um, where unemployment is, is, is pretty low and that's a very welcome development, but the forces that, um, really drove us to the position we were before the pandemic, um, you know, I think are still going to be there coming out of the pandemic. Uh, and, and so I think there really is sort of a point to be made here that says that, um, you know, w- the dignity of work is about more than just getting a paycheck. It's about actually, you know, d- d- just that, the dignity of work, and that we want to be able to make sure that um, everyone who can work is, is able to work. And I think there's a very real prospect through the kind of forces, the economic forces of secular stagnation that, um, you know, there's going to be insufficient uh, private sector demand to support that. And and so, you know, that leaves you with, you know, how do you fill that hole? Now, what we don't want to do is have some kind of jobs guarantee that gets in the way of the private sector. And certainly, you know, some proposals for a jobs guarantee, perhaps many proposals, um, are really about using it as a stalking horse to try and interfere with and drive up private sector wages and and kind of mess with private enterprise that's not our proposal our proposal is to say let's do something that's just a little bit below minimum wage so it does nothing to get in the way of private sector employment that will soak up that that excess labor and do it for a socially productive use and so that that could be in environmental remediation um and and you know waterway clean up sandbagging fixing levees and so on uh, is an obvious area, but it could could be beyond that, but that's why we call it a green jobs guarantee. And we think that would be a socially productive use while keeping people employed rather than simply giving them a paycheck, yet at the same time, not interfering with the private sector.
1: Okay, um, and do you think sort of the the societal benefit from those jobs would justify the cost uh, of this sort of proposal?
0: Uh, you know I I do and you know as I say firstly the, the 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 um firstly the the actual cost is really not very high when you're talking about something a little below minimum wage. Secondly, we'd be taking care of a bunch of those folks anyway. So part of taking the generous social minimum seriously says, look, we're not willing to just say your unemployment insurance has run out. You know you get nothing, um, and if that means you're completely destitute, we're going to leave you to you know, private charity to see if that's going to work. So we'd be paying these folks their dignified social minimum anyway. It's not a whole lot of money, but it's enough to live. Um, And so why don't we get some social benefit out of it, give people some purpose and the dignity of work, and at the same time arguably provide them with a path back to employment in the private sector and, and create a ladder for that. And I think one of the things that's overwhelmingly clear from volumes and volumes of research is that once you become long-term unemployed, your chance of ever getting back into the labour market becomes greatly diminished. And so keeping people in the labour market is a really important way to make sure that we don't create a cycle of long-run welfare dependency.
1: Okay. Um, and would that be um, sort of like an an alternative, like um if you're able if you're able-bodied um and, and able to do any of these jobs that you wouldn't receive any wealth, like this would be preconditioned for for receiving that, like we would um basically eliminate the, the welfare system as it stands now.
0: I wouldn't say eliminate all of the welfare system, but you know, this would be in the place of getting essentially unemployment benefits. Um, because you wouldn't be unemployed, so it would it would certainly substitute for you know a meaningful part of uh, of the welfare system. But but you know there are, that's a broad concept with many components to it, and there'll be people who are you know disabled and un- unable to work. There are people in um, you know other circumstances, but um, you know it would have that benefit for sure, that sort of offsetting benefit for sure.
1: Okay. Um, And so the next proposal in this part of the book is Australian style universal healthcare. Um, So there there is um, this one, I think is a bit more straightforward and has already seen widespread implementation um, except in the United States. So can you tell us a bit more about how the Australian system works for our listeners who aren't familiar and and why you think it would be preferable?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, (laughs) Not many people outside of Australia would be familiar with it, although John Delaney ran for the Democratic Party's presidential nomination with a proposal that looked pretty similar to this. So the way we describe it is as a public baseline rather than a public option. It's very different from the kind of single-payer system that you'd be familiar with in Canada or the National Health Service, the NHS, in Great Britain. In Australia, we have a thing, uh, you, you know, unhelpfully, I guess, in making the translation called Medicare. So it's it's a universal program, okay? And what it does is it gives everyone access to a baseline level of, of healthcare. And then alongside that sits private health insurance. And there are a series of carrots and sticks with this. So one, there's tax rebate for buying private health insurance in the private market. Secondly, if you earn income over a certain level, then you're going to pay additional income tax if you don't buy private health care. And so basically it's saying, okay, we're going to, in, in a way, essentially means test universal health care, but we're going to make sure everyone still has health care so you get the benefits of, you know, diversifying the risk pool and have everyone in there. And, you know, Medicare comes with good access to very good health care and we have very good outcomes in Australia, but it doesn't give you... A bunch of elective surgery, or a choice of your, you know, your your surgeon, uh, you know, a choice of doctor when it comes to getting surgery, or a private room, uh, or, or be able to go to one of the fancier hospitals or things like that. But it gives everyone a really great level of healthcare, and you know, we we have extremely good life expectancy outcomes in Australia. I think the fourth highest in the world, and we spend less than half of what the United States spends on healthcare. And, you know, I think, you know, for, for most people they they would, who've compared both systems and been both systems, they would say that, um, you know, the quality of care all the way along the spectrum from people who are, you know, quite poor to people who are very wealthy, uh, you know, is, is typically better in Australia than in the United States. I mean, I think one thing that's definitely true in the US is, you know, if you've got some incredibly rare condition... Uh, or or possibly if you want the first type of organ transplant that's ever been done in the world, that's probably going to be happening at Mass General or UCSF. And I agree that at the very, very, very top end, you know, for $40,000 a year in premiums, healthcare in the US is pretty great. But, you know, people at the very top end in Australia get great healthcare as well, and then all the way down throughout the system, it works very well. So it's, it's not, you know the sanders plan or the warren plan it's not canada it's not the uk all of which have problems in terms of rationing stuff We don't have those problems in australia because it's this public baseline with private insurance with the carrots and sticks to get that private insurance that goes along with it that makes it fiscally sustainable uh, and, and it also makes it um you know very effective from a medical perspective
1: okay um Well, one of the arguments, um, I think, against this this type of system that often gets overlooked when discussing Uh, transition to either a single payer or, you know, I'm guessing it would even apply to a transition to an Australian style system in the United States, is the decline in in biomedical innovation it would cause. cause. So currently, the United States' system drives innovation for the whole world, um, and the U.S. is by far the world's leader in this space, with countries like Australia coming nowhere close. Um, So in a universal covered system, the government would seek to limit spending by reducing payments to doctors and pharmaceutical companies while scrutinizing treatments for cost-effectiveness. So there would also presumably be pharmaceutical price controls like in Australia. So this in turn would lead to less biomedical innovation. So if the United States were to adapt an Australian style system, which only really works as it does now, because the U S puts the bill for the innovation, um, how would we account for this drop?
0: Look, I think, you know, it's partly a fair point to say that a lot of the pharmaceutical innovation, I think we can sort of separate pharmaceuticals here from, from medical procedures themselves in terms of that level of innovation, but that a lot of pharmaceutical innovation takes place in the United States, no question about that. I think the question we have to ask ourselves is, is the United States, just the United States alone, I acknowledge that there's, there are positive spillovers that the United States system creates for countries like Australia and Canada and, and the UK and France and Germany and Italy and so on, um, is the is it in the United States own national interest to spend an extra 10% of gdp the way that it does it now to create that innovation and i would suggest that you know if you if you separated those two things out and said okay well, we're going to make massive national investments in pharmaceutical innovation yet we're going to run our healthcare system more effectively and we're not going to basically fund that pharmaceutical innovation through massive markups by HMOs and hospitals, um, you know, charging uh, $40,000 for $200 procedures in order to get enough money through the back door into pharmaceutical innovation. I think it would be a lot more effective. And, you know, you can, 10% of United States GDP, you can do a lot with that. And I would suggest that. You know if you took a share of that saving and put maybe two percent of US GDP into additional um you know public funding for pharmaceutical innovation, uh, you could get a lot more bang for the buck.
1: Okay. Yeah, I I see how that 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 argument um materializes here um in, in saying that we're already doing this so ine- um inefficiently that we could we could um, reform everything um and be so much better off but even if we were to use part of that um, and, and funnel it back, we would still be better off than we are today. Is that sort
0: of like the overview? Yeah, of that's, that's exactly that's exactly right. I'm not I'm not denying the innovation. I just think the United States is overpaying for it by funding that innovation in a very inefficient way.
1: OK, and I, I think sort of the last um solution in this this part of the book is titled internalizing externalities towards a carbon dividend so can you tell us how, how this would look and, and why it's necessary as well yeah absolutely i alluded to this before so this is a price on carbon
0: it's a carbon tax you take the proceeds of that all of the proceeds of that and rather than tip them into green innovation or government consolidated revenue you take all of the proceeds and you give it back to everyone say in America and you give it back on a per capita basis. So what does that do? It does two things. It gives you all the benefits, or it gives you all the incentive benefits of a carbon tax. It means that people are bearing the marginal cost of the greenhouse gases that they they're causing to be emitted through their transportation or their other, you know, energy use. So it gives you an incentive, gives you a price signal to say do I really need the lights on? Do I really want to run the dishwasher again? Do I, you know, really want a gas-guzzling car and so on but it gives that money back, which one means that it's going back to the people who are paying it, but because it's going back to everyone on a per capita basis, doesn't mess up those incentives for behavioural change. And secondly, it's got an inbuilt progressivism to it. So the numbers in the United States look along the lines of between two-thirds and 70% of the population being better off as a result of this. So people with three hummers and two swimming pools uh, and a 12,000-square-foot house that they heat and cool and keep the lights on for are going to pay a lot and they're not going to recoup that, uh, you you know, in the the carbon dividend. But, you know, people at the lower end of the income distribution are getting their share of the total carbon dividend and so they'll be better off. And so it's got a kind of equity to it. It's got an inbuilt progressivism to it but all the virtues of a carbon tax. And I think that's why it got support across the political spectrum from, um, you know, economists like the late Marty Feldstein, who was chair of the Council of Economic Advisers for President Reagan, um, from people like, uh, again, sadly, passed away, George Shultz, by people like Jim Baker, but also has uh, four former Fed chairs from both sides of politics, uh, I think 20 or 25-odd Nobel Prize winners behind this plan by the Climate Leadership Council, I think that's a really effective way of doing what we've – economists have said and known since the 1970s, you know, that the way you deal with externalities and and pollution or, you know, global warming, uh, climate change, it, it, you know, is the sort of canonical example of that, is is you internalise that externality through the price mechanism. It's no magic. It's really, um, you know, a political issue. And I think this helps solve the political problem by making – you know, between two thirds and 70% of Americans better off as a result of it.
1: Okay. Um, well, those are all the questions I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. Holden. It's It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Oh, it's been great to chat. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.